What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code intelligence at the checkout. A better web starts with your website. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. America's drone campaign is both moral and effective. This debate took place on the 27th of February 2013 at Sadler's Wells Theatre in London. Well, good evening everyone and welcome to this Google versus Intelligence Squared debate on what is rapidly becoming one of the key issues of our time, a real market issue, targeted killing by unmanned aerial vehicles or what we have come to know as drones. Now, it may seem odd on the face of it to pay so much attention to this form of killing since there's nothing new about the use of pilotless remote-controlled missiles Think of cruise missiles, for example. But what makes drones so distinctive is that unlike cruise missiles, they can hover over a battlefield or any place, really, waiting for their target and be precisely controlled by a pilot thousands of miles away. And unlike cruise missiles, they can return to base to fire their missiles over and over again once they return. These these differences are crucial. They change the game. Suddenly we confront a whole lot of novel dilemmas. Does targeted killing actually hit the target or does it in practice entail the death of hundreds of non-combatants? Does use of drones hand the military and even worse the intelligence services and the CIA an unsupervisable opportunity to conduct covert warfare? Does this use increase the likelihood of covert warfare against countries who are not declared enemies? All these questions and many more will be raised by our motion tonight, which, as you all know, is America's drone campaign is both moral and effective. And it's a motion that sets the bar quite high for those who are proposing it because they have to clear two hurdles, not just one. First, they have to show that America's use of drones is effective, which in this context principally means are they an effective way of suppressing terrorism or do they actually increase it? 
And second, even if they can persuade you of that, they've also got to show you that it's morally justified, that, for example, it does not come at a cost of too many civilian casualties, that it does not hand too much unaccountable power to those who should not have it, and so forth. Well, here to debate these issues tonight, we have a very distinguished group of panellists, not just here in the studio, but on your screens in brought to you from that wonderful device, the Google Plus Hangout. And they will be talking to you from America and Sweden, and not just from the United Kingdom. So to get straight on with things, um, let me introduce our first speaker tonight. He is a very distinguished Times columnist, writer, author, winner of the George Orwell Prize for Political Journalism. He is David Ironovich. Um, it's unusual for me to propose a motion. I usually like to go last and duff the other side up. Um, and now I'm going to have to be much more uh, positive and constructive. Um, but we are talking here uh, about something destructive. We're talking about a system uh, which delivers warheads, explosives, to a particular place with the objective of killing people. Um, and there's no way in which the proposers of this motion seek in some way to kind of avoid that or to dignify it with any kind of imaginary fun uh, or say that it's anything other than it is. But in proposing the motion, there are a series of questions that you have to consider. And the first and most obvious one is, is there a threat that requires to be dealt with? In other words, are drones or something like them or some other system of dealing with things likely to be necessary in order to do a particular thing that we need doing. So my first proposition to you is that there is, in effect, although it's a different kind of war, there is a war going on in all different kinds of places, in slightly different kinds of ways, but nevertheless, with a series of sometimes interrelated groups who have a series of characteristics in common, which is a incredible hatred for people they regard as being against them or against their ideology or against what they want to achieve and those could be a Shia minority in the town of Quetta in Pakistan, it could be uh, Afghan uh, um, uh, police or Afghan soldiers or British or American or coalition soldiers in Afghanistan, it could be a Pakistani schoolgirl who wants to have an education in Pakistan in a way that they think is un-Islamic. Um, a variety of organisations, Al-Qaeda, uh, 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 Lashkar-e-Jangvi, the group that blew up recently, the two, made the two big bomb attacks in Quetta on Pakistani Shia, the Pakistani Taliban, the people who took over the SWAT Valley for a period with the toleration of the Pakistani government and then had to be pushed out at enormous cost and who come back from time to time. The training camps that are in those areas, I'm talking mostly about Pakistan here, my knowledge of Yemen is considerably less. Um, uh, the training camps also for suicide bombers and the places where suicide bombers uh, are given their instructions and their weapons. Does that constitute a threat? I would argue that it does. Not only does it currently attack 
people. But if you didn't interdict it, if you didn't strike it, it would attack and kill a large number more people in various places around the world, including, if it could, Britons. So that's the first point. The second point, therefore, is it moral or effective? So the second question to ask about the drone strikes, the use of drone strikes, is are they proportionate to the kind of threat that there is? And I would argue that they are. Now, the first thing you have to say in context of are they proportionate is to look at what the alternatives would be once you've decided that there is a threat. And one of the things that the opposition are going to have to tell us is whether they do think there is a threat. So the next question is, if you do think there's a threat, what the mechanisms are that you have to deal with it. And as Paddy Ashdown pointed out in the Times last week, by and large, the other mechanisms for dealing with such a threat are far more bloody, far more indiscriminate, and they kill very, very many more civilians as a proportion of the total number of people that they affect. Um, whether that is bombing, carpet bombing with B-52s, conventional bombing from planes, helicopter uh, strikes by and large, um, and, uh, and certainly artillery strikes, and probably any form of putting troops on the ground and so on, because their, um, uh, because their visibility is going to be more limited. Um, as far as we can tell, at the most at the outside, probably one in uh, seven to ten of the people who have been killed, which include a large number of senior Al-Qaeda, senior Taliban, senior, uh, uh, senior Lashvar Jangvi people, um, and other similar such groups, uh, have been civilians. And there's no beating uh, uh, around the bush about that. That is a significantly lower figure than for other types of strike. Um, the, um, this is also one of the reasons, incidentally, why the Pakistani government, though outwardly condemning drone strikes, actually, as we know, um, agrees with them, agrees with their targeting. And as the author Imtiaz Gul recently said, um, uh, uh, army people were talking to a group of Pakistani journalists not so long ago, and the Pakistani army people said, as long as the, they, the drones, take out the guys who are a threat to us all, why crib about it? Uh, and so on. So we should understand that in Pakistan, at least, and in Yemen too, uh, uh, and in Mali, as it happens, the local governments are, whatever they might say, usually they're openly in support, are actually supportive of it. So that, I think, is the basis of the moral position. It's proportionate and necessary. Is it effective? Well, it's certainly taken out a large number of top leaders of these organisations, as well as their lower-down people. Um, there's no doubt about that. Bin Laden admitted uh, as much in materials that were found in Abbottabad uh, when, he was, uh, when he was assassinated, not by a drone. Um, and Pakistani, senior Pakistani journalists and people who uh, write about the area talk about the level of attrition there has been upon senior, upon the Pakistani Taliban in recent years, so much so that they are not in a position to launch the same kind of gigantic attacks that they did and to take over areas as they did in Swat back in the mid-2000s uh, and so on. So the next argument is, is that the end of time altogether? No, you've got a minute. I've got a minute. OK, so I will move very, very quickly to, uh, uh, to a sum up. I will make concessions, which we'll hear later, to some of the arguments of the opposition, because it's stupid not to. Most notably, whether or not the technology itself provides too low a threshold and makes it too easy to be used. I think that that is something that we ought to talk about. But, like they say when 
uh, in the film Argo, which won the Oscar the other day, it may very well be that drones from the humanitarian people, uh, uh, humanitarian perspective, are a bad idea. But what the opposition have to show us is that they're not the best bad idea that we've had. Thank you. Stay, stay where you are. Oh, yes, of course, David. Thank you very much. I had been instructed much. to stay where I was and be interrogated, and at the first moment, I've gone away. Sorry. No, well, it, thank you for your obedience. Um, now, the reason David is not going away is because he is about to be challenged, interrogated, and hear the views of one of our distinguished panellists in America. He is an assistant professor of political science at La Salle University and a former advisor to Barack Obama on the subject of counterterrorism. Since he is not, I think, an enthusiast for the widespread use of drones, and since Obama gives the appearance of being so, one wonders if how much of his advice actually got through. He is Michael Boyle. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to participate with this. Uh, I've got a couple of questions I'd like to start off to pose to David, and then I'll move into a couple general points. Uh, the first question is, the first point you raise is whether the threat is there, in a sense, is present, and whether some response is necessary. And here I think there is a real danger that David is leading us into a false choice. But the choice is not drone strikes or bombs in Western cities. The choice is not drone strikes or a victory for al-Qaeda. But actually, in fact, there are a range of intermediate options that are, in some cases, better. For example, we might want to build the intelligence and police capacity of some of the states where terrorists are operating. We might want to think about ways to remove the causes of terrorism. We might want to think about things like special operations, all of which are intermediate positions beyond the sort of surrender or drones proposition. And so one question is you can accept that, that there is a threat and not come to the conclusion that drones are the necessary and inevitable consequence of it. The second question I would raise and, and ask David to respond to is the question about proportionality. And here we run into a really difficult problem, which is about the absence of official government statistics on the number of people that are being killed. Uh, in fact, much of the drones program is not conducted in active theaters of war like Afghanistan. It's conducted in Pakistan and Yemen and elsewhere. And it's, in a sense, off the books. And the U.S. government has not released statistics on the number of people killed. What we know from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, what they have collected, suggests that between 3,000 and 4,800 people have been killed through drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, excluding those killed in Afghanistan. And that about 500 to 1,100 of those are, at least we think, civilians. But the truth of the matter is all of the arguments about proportionality hinge on some analysis of data that doesn't in fact actually exist. We have no way to know what the real number is. In fact, the U.S. government recently leaked, Lindsey Graham accidentally said that he thought 4,700 people had been killed with it. So when we talk about proportionality, we have to ask ourselves, how do we know what is proportional? And then the second question becomes, David tells us, well, the option is this or, for example, ground strikes or air operations. But in fact, actually, this is where the distinction between drone usage in an active theater of war and drone usage out of the side of an active theater of war is relevant. You could make an argument that drone usage in Afghanistan is merely a question of tactics. Whether I launch an airstrike or a drone is simply a question of tactics. But in this, it is simply the case that the United States is not at war with Pakistan or Yemen. And therefore, the option for the United States in that instance in Pakistan and Yemen is not drone strikes or airstrikes and ground operations. In fact, actually, we're not at war with these countries, in which case those more horrible military options are essentially off the table. The final couple points that I'd like to raise more generally and to ask people to respond to is that much of what we're talking about when we attack people with drones is we assume that they are high-ranking al-Qaeda commanders. 
but a most a recent estimate done by Peter Bergen suggests that only 2% of them should be considered leaders or high-ranking operational commanders. In fact, drone strikes have killed many more people who were foot soldiers or even perhaps innocents. And one question that comes out, out with this is the more you expand the number of people killed in drone strikes, not just to hitting people lower down on the organizational food chain, but also networks that are not directly part of al-Qaeda, the greater you run the risk of blowback of grieving families, of people who are angered, and of this coming back to the United States in some way, or coming back to anyone who uses drones in some really important way. The final two points that I'll raise, one is the question about the political cost of drone strikes. Uh, if it is true that drones are unpopular in places like Pakistan and Yemen, and this is a disputed point, but if it is true that they are unpopular in these countries, then in fact actually what you might wind up doing is creating a situation in which the U.S. sends a signal to these governments that their sovereignty is negligible, that it can push aside their governments and bomb their territory at will. And that corrodes the authority of the government. It also may make it harder for that government to say yes to the United States in key counterterrorism demands. And the final point that I'll ask and pose to David and anyone else who wants to ask it is what kind of question, what kind of world are we creating with drone strikes? Are we creating a world that normalizes, for example, extrajudicial killing? Is this the kind of world that we want to create? Is this the kind of precedent that we want to set? And I think one of the great dangers of the U.S. drone program is that we have normalized this tactic. We've created a precedent under which we can bomb people in foreign countries off of the niceties of extradition or trial. And that is actually a much more violent and destabilized and polarized world, particularly polarized between those who have drones and those who are victims to them, victims of them. And that's not, I think, the world we want to create. Can I get David to come back at you here on the point of normalizing extrajudicial killings? Um, that's, uh, yeah, you can, although there are a couple of other points I would have liked to have taken up uh, 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 first. Um, I, th I think that you have a point both about sovereignty, um, which is why it's important to know that most of the countries involved in drone strikes have actually requested them. Um, and I have to say that rather deal, uh, also deals with your slightly interesting point about how we should build up the special operation, uh, how we should build up the intelligence capacity of, say, Pakistan, Yemen, and in particular Mali. I think you'll agree that's not going to be easy. Um, and there are a lot of things going to go on in the meantime as you try to build up the intelligence opera, uh, capacity of Mali, I feel. Uh, and in that space, things will happen. And this is the problem. The things that will happen is that the bombs and the sewer camps, etc., and the people being trained in the camps that are being attacked at the moment, instead of being interdicted if we stop, will continue. But your strongest point, I think, is the point about knowing the figures and so on. And, of course, this is linked to the difficulty of divulging intelligence about targeting, which is a tr very traditional problem. There's nothing new about the extraterritoriality of drones for, from any other form of, uh, of cross-border incursion uh, and so on. But there is a difficulty in discovering precisely what's happening. And that's why I welcome journalism, which is based on trying to discover what's happening on the ground. And I think that administrations like the Obama administration should engage with it rather than being frightened of it. Because the final Michael, point that I would make at this point which is yeah, very, 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 very quick. Given that we're running out of time, right. let me let, get, let Michael to, to respond to that. And to particular, in particular, Michael, to the, uh, to the point made by David that it's all very well to say you build up local retaliatory strike forces, but in the circumstances, that seems rather an improbable option. I'm not sure that it's an improbable option. I think it's a longer-term option. I think one of the things that the drone debate is marked by is short-term versus long-term thinking. You know, we continue to strike people in these foreign countries that we think are potential dangers. These are hypothetical dangers in many respects. 
and I would say that that's a short-term solution at the expense of a longer-term solution. Is it sustainable, for example, to use drone strikes in perpetuity on these countries? I'm not convinced that it is. In which case, I would make the longer-term gamble that maybe what you do is you look at reducing the sources of terrorism, you build special operations capacity, you try and do things to reduce the sources of this and to change the capacity of the government. Sure, it wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't ever be the only thing you did. It would be an incredibly stupid strategy that based itself purely on drone strikes. So at that level, we can completely agree. What we're well, talking on about the, is how on you the level of the complete agreement problem. is where we're going to have yeah. to park this for now. Michael, don't go away. Um, and David, if you feel free to sit down now, we will <laughs> move on to our first speaker against the motion. Um, he's well known, some would say celebrated civil rights lawyer and founder director of the human rights organization Reprieve UK. In 2004, I didn't know this before, but I do now, he prepared a 50-page brief for the defense of Saddam Hussein, arguing he should be tried in the U.S. under U.S. criminal law. And more recently, he toured Pakistan, protesting against the use of drones. So he's a man who knows whereof he speaks on these issues. Clive Stafford-Smith. Well, I will say that thing about Saddam is an illustration of how Wikipedia gets the facts wrong, but that's really not terribly relevant uh, to here. What bothers me, and I'm so glad we're having this uh, discussion, is that we are sleepwalking into the drone age. Uh, it's not that all drones are bad, of course. I saw something the other day about a drone that's a vacuum cleaner, and I would love one of those things. It would make my life so much better. But that's not the subject of the debate tonight. The debate tonight is about whether U.S drone policy is moral and effective. And let's talk about the immorality first in legal terms. I'm told I'm the only lawyer here tonight and I'm meant to say whether it's legal or not. Um, you know, the law is often an ass. But in this instance, it's fatuous to argue that what's going on in Pakistan is legal. Uh, David said that the Pakistani government silently and secretly says, oh, kill all our citizens. We sued them, and they said very publicly, don't kill our citizens. And I submit to you that if the British government secretly said, kill people in Bridport because I'd like to get rid of them, we'd all know that was illegal. If it's illegal, and it obviously is illegal, there's no question that it is, then you have a pretty difficult argument that it's moral. Uh, because we in America, and I'm half American, and in this case I apologize for that aspect, for what we're doing, but we are a nation of the rule of law. And if we're telling the people around the world you need the rule of law and then we're violating it, we're hypocrites, and that is wrong. Now let's move on to whether it's effective. It's not effective because so many of the things we've done in this misguided war of terror, as Borat calls it, just aggravate people around the world. On September the 12th, 2001, we as America had a reservoir of goodwill of people who really cared for us that we'd been the victims of a terrible crime. We have frittered that away. And we've done it through Guantanamo Bay, where I'm going on Saturday. We've done it through Abu Ghraib. We've done it through all these policies where we've sacrificed what our principles are, and hypocrisy is obviously what breeds hatred. Part of it, in turn, we have to be realistic about this. It's not just the theory David talks about. It's about the cowboy attitude that we Americans have. We have predator drones that have hellfire missiles, and when we see one of you who's afraid, we call you a squirter because you're wetting your pants. And then when we kill you with a hellfire missile, we call it a bug splat. Now, that's the sort of thing that pisses people off around the world. 
Uh, and I was noticing, noting one thing that Christine Fair, my interlocutor, wrote in 2012 about double taps, which is when someone gets hit and some rescuers come out to try to help them, the old Good Samaritan thing. Uh, and, you know, the American policy is to kill them too on the presumption that someone who is the Good Samaritan has to be a bad dude if they're trying to help some people we thought were bad dudes in the first place. And Christine wrote, The United States likely learned this from terrorists who pioneered the tactic of attacking one site, waiting for first responders to appear, only to strike again to maximize casualties. When we as Americans are taking our policies from terrorists, I think it's immoral and wrong. Uh, and I'd like, uh, obviously, Christine to respond to that and say whether she disagrees. Christine goes on to say that drones are the best alternative once the United States decides that a person is to be killed. That's what she wrote in the New York Times in 2012. Well, who gives us the right to decide who is to be killed? I've spent my life fighting the death penalty. That's the death penalty with a trial. I get a little offended when we talk about the death penalty without a trial, of the people that I'm trying to represent. And, you know, when Christine went to Pakistan more recently, she said in Dawn, perhaps to a slightly different audience, I don't like that my country is in the business of extrajudicial killings. I agree with you, Christine. And I think we can all agree with you on that. They're not effective either. We have a lot of talk about innocent people and whether innocent people get killed. I'm telling you, they do. I've met the families. Indeed, I met one individual who was killed three days later. Again, Christine says in, on PBS, none of the allegations that civilians have been killed by drones have been verified. The legal term for that is sheer drivel. Uh, and I'll give you a few examples. I was in Pakistan in 2011. We held a jirgah. It sounded so much grander than just holding a meeting. And one of the people there was this kid, a 16-year-old child called uh, Tariq Aziz. I shook him by the hand. He was there to ask why it was my nation was killing his family. I didn't have a good answer to him, and he wanted to work with us. Three days later, he was killed. And he was killed because we Americans give bounties, just like we did with Guantanamo, to local people to put GPS tags on cars so we can fire missiles at them. And, you know, if I give you uh, a, a little tag and some money, you don't put the GPS tag on the really bad dude's car, because that gets you in trouble. You stick it on the car of someone who's not nearly as dangerous. And unfortunately, that's happening. You know, there's also the question of the terrorization of all the community. There are 800,000 people in Waziristan. The difference between drones and these other weapons is they go round and round and round your head. Is that a minute or is that the end? And just a general sense of reassurance that sense I'm Sense of, I am feeling so much better. Good. In that case, I'll have a glass of water. Anyway, you know, these things go round and round over your head, and we're doing a project where we're collecting the, the anti-anxiety medication prescriptions that show all the people in Waziristan are being terrorized by these things. This isn't like bombing you every now and then. They're there all the time. And I've met so many people who have done it. David was quite right when he said that this lowers the threshold of going to war. There's a fascinating website of Northrop Grumman which shows 20 countries where they think that their drones should be used to kill people by the American government. Well, there's no time in history where we've had 20 wars going on at a time. But we can do that because, as Christine says, at the end of the day, the drone pilot, 
even if the drone goes down, he goes home for his dinner. Because there's no danger of an American body bag. I don't want American body bags, but we need to not. We need to be very serious about lowering the threshold of war. So it is, with respect, both immoral and counterproductive. Well, thank you very much for that, Clive. And I, I'll, I'll stand here before you admonish And me. now, um, before you go, and I'm glad that you've learned the lesson that David didn't quite learn, you stay there because uh, the next person, the person who's now going to challenge you, is one who you spent a lot of your speech challenging, Clive. She's uh, assistant professor at the Center for Peace and Security Studies at Georgetown University. She's a woman who has written widely on security issues in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, and who has served in Kabul as a political officer to the UN mission to Afghanistan. And she's a senior fellow with the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. In short, she has her finger on the pulse of all of the issues that are concerning us right now and has been called out, what's more, by Clive Stafford-Smith and is waiting for her six minutes to, I think, reply to him. Christine, over to you. Yeah, I actually want to express a little dismay. When I did my pre-interview for this so-called debate, um, I registered my explicit rejection to the motion uh, describing drones as moral and effective. And I registered my dispute with that because, A, I think we can't really adjudicate whether it's moral because there is so much opacity surrounding um, Pakistani participation, the actual numbers of civilians killed and so forth. And since we actually don't know, other than Peter Bergen's uh, somewhat informed musings, who's killed and with what consequences, we can't argue that it's effective. So having registered that vexation um, that I was told that the, the, the motion would be changed, and apparently it was not, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and make my arguments. I do want to stand by the simple claim that I do not feel comfortable with targeted killing. I would prefer in all cases that individuals are arrested, that cases are made against those persons on the basis of evidence that they're prosecuted in court. And unfortunately, uh, the Pakistan situation is really unique for a number of reasons. And my comments are really only going to be confined to Pakistan. So I'm not exactly the, the pro-drone um, and Coulter that some people make me out to be. But with respect to the Pakistan opposition, there are about five claims that are typically made to say that drones are inappropriate or less suitable or even less optimal. First, the claim is that they violate Pakistan sovereignty. I have to say, this is perhaps one of the more preposterous assertions. And as a matter of fact, the Americans are building a new drone base north of Peshawar. Americans are not building that with American labor. They're doing it with Pakistani workers, with Pakistani security. Um, Pakistan's a free rider. It gets the benefit of the drones without taking any of the political heat. So anyone who says that the Pakistanis are not permitting this are, I, I have to say, they're smoking crack. It's one of the most preposterous things I could imagine anyone saying with a straight face. The second claim is this, this debate around whether or not drones kill excessive civilians and, when ex and what excessive means. Someone, in fact, several people mentioned the BIJ project. I'm gonna talk about BIJ as well as NAF, uh, the New America Foundation project that Peter Bergen has overseen. And there've been a few others as well. Unfortunately, because there are no media that are permitted into Pakistan, none of these claims can be independently verified. And all due respect, good sir, you may have went to Pakistan, you didn't go to Fatah. 
Um, similarly, with all due respect, why you assume that every person you met told you the truth is, is equally puzzling. I've been going to Pakistan since 1991, um, and in some sense, dissembling on issues of this nature should be expected, and you should always go into things, uh, perhaps with a little bit of incredulity. Um, the, the reality is that since the uh, Pakistani press corps, and certainly foreigners, um, when I've ever, I've gone to Fatah, it's, it's been with, uh, with a military escort, you, you can't simply go there and independently verify the claims of who was killed. So uh, when you see photographs of children that have been mangled, uh, it's equally possible that those children were harmed uh, from shrapnel and terrorist attacks. In fact, it is the case that photographs have turned up in Pakistan claiming to be children are um, harmed by drones when in fact they were harmed by other things. So um, some credul incredulity is absolutely warranted when we're talking about these civilian casualties, in part because the ISI, Pakistan's intelligence agency, actually runs a media cell. And they're very active, and, and any Pakistani journalist will tell you this, they're very active in manipulating press reports, not only about drones, but, but other affairs as well. The other uh, complaint that is frequently made is that they're not targeting U.S. foes, um, that they tend to target U.S. foes and not of Pakistan. That's not an argument that's been made here thus far. In fact, there seems to be um, considerable realism in this debate thus far relative to the comments made by such fellows as Chris Woods. Um, uh, in, in fact, my contacts tell me that we're overwhelmingly killing Pakistani terrorists, that is to say, not al-Qaeda. And there are legal implications of that that I'll, that I'll discuss in a minute or two. The fourth argument is that this is somehow a joystick killing. I see this simply as revolutions of military affairs. If you go back and you look at the debate surrounding the introduction of armored cavalry um, over horses, you had people that preferred mounted cavalry saying that armored cavalry is not chivalrous, but it's not gentlemanly. Well, war isn't gentlemanly, and, and war is certainly not chivalrous. Um, this is RMA, it's revolution of military affairs. Drones aren't going away, uh, are not going away any time. I might also add that... Christine, pilots... just before you do add that, can we just get Clive to counterattack very briefly so that you can finally re-volley when he's finished? Okay. okay. I actually would like to finish making the, the, the final two points, actually. All right, make them, but make them quickly because we're running out of time on your yeah, slot here. Yeah, of course. So this isn't joystick killing. Um, these are actual pilots. These are otherly piloted vehicles, and they actually suffer PTSD at higher rates than, than, than actually ordinary pilots doing conventional runs. And then finally, the claim that drones somehow make more terrorists than they kill. Unfortunately, there's, there's no evidence to support or to uh, reject that claim. So it's a vacuous claim that people make to uh, undermine the drone program, but there's no evidence to support that claim. Clive, we are going to have an opportunity to join forces later on, so you have a choice. I'd like to just you can it. sit down now. This is, not a, this is a mild suggestion. Oh, or you could just pick one of those barbs and, and send it back whence it came, not but barbs. only one. No, I don't want barbs. I want to have some of that crack cocaine that Christine's smoking. But the idea that the Pakistan government has legally given permission for this is ludicrous. We were in court with them the other day. They swore up and down. They were opposed to it. Whether they're liars or not is not the question. You simply cannot lie about your country and lie and say you're, giving, you're not giving permission for people okay. to be killed and then let it happen. That's not legal. Christine, and just before he sits down, do you have a... It's his opinion, but it is impossible for the U.S. to fly drones out of Pakistani territory in Pakistani airspace 
using intelligence leads provided by the Pakistanis, inclusive of building a drone base without Pakistani permission. Um, this boggles my mind that anyone would even entertain for a femtosecond that this is, quote, uh, violating Pakistan's sovereignty because they're not giving us permission. They clearly are giving us permission. Um, it's actually time to pull the ISI out of the closet. Um, in, in terms of sustaining this program in Pakistan, it can only be sustained if Pakistanis understand the extent to which their own government is complicit in this. It's time to stop this. Okay, well, let's leave it there for now. Thank you, Clive. Thank you, Christine. Talking, talking about the mind boggling, the mind does boggle a bit to think what form you would have been in if you actually agreed with the motion. All right. The audience is a bit slow on that one. But... <laughs> um, right, now, on to our next speaker, who is a journalist, an author, and associate director of the foreign policy think tank, the uh, Henry Jackson Society. He is a man who I think it's fair to say is never inclined to shy away from controversy, and he is Douglas Murray, who now has six minutes to make his case. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, I, um, I agree with everything that my colleague David Aronovich has said, and I disagree with some of what Clive has said, uh, and I'm not going to be as uh, oppositional as perhaps uh, you might wish on this. I will concede the same points that David did. This is not uh, uh, nice. It's uh, not surgical. It's a mistake to think that this is uh, some kind of abstract war game. It isn't. It involves real people and real people's lives. Terrorism exists, however, and the question is what you are going to do with it. Terrorism is a serious problem. There are people, there may even be people tonight who don't believe that, uh, I think they're wildly mistaken, and I think, apart from anything else, it's a great shame uh, that uh, Clive didn't mention the number of people who would have to take anti-anxiety medication because they live in an area dominated by jihadis. Uh, nobody counts those people so much. You know, if uh, terrorism exists, the question is, as I say, what do you do about it? Now, the Bush administration, immediately after 9-11, had one way of dealing with this. It decided that you would send in very large amounts of American troops. Uh, you would use all of your newest, latest military technology, but you would have boots on the ground. You would spend, in the case of both Iraq and Afghanistan, very many years caught up in local politics, local and tribal disputes, and many people uh, lost their lives during that period. It was a response and it did a very great amount of harm to the United States, and it also did a very great amount of harm to al-Qaeda and others who wished the United States ill. Now, during that period, the Bush administration also took part in a policy of extraditing people in countries like Afghanistan to Guantanamo Bay, Bush himself authorized three individuals to be waterboarded, three known terrorists to be waterboarded. And I do not think that I'm alone in noticing that this policy was not widely popular. Among other things, not very popular with Clive Stafford-Smith and other well-paid human rights lawyers. 
They have had, however, a terrific success with the uh, response that they had. They have had a terrific res- uh, um, result in that they have persuaded the most left-wing president in American history, Barack Obama, to skip the rendition and trials process and go straight for targeted assassination. So congratulations on that. Why is this the case? It's because the Obama administration came in and they saw what their predecessors saw, which was that the threat was real and that you had to do something about it. Now, the idea that the Obama administration is at all loose in how it does this is a mistake. Let me just quote uh, the Attorney General Uh, Eric Holder, who said uh, recently at the Northwestern University School of Law, he said, talked about the criteria for using lethal force against people in this way. First, the US government has determined, after a thorough and careful review, that the individual poses an imminent threat of violent attack against the United States. Second, capture is not feasible. And third, the operation would be conducted in a manner consistent with applicable law of war principles. That is Obama's attorney general. Now, there are, as I say, if if we agree that the Bush policy didn't go down all that well, and if we think that drones have to go out of the equation, we have to then address, as as Dave Ranovich also said, we have to address what are the other options. There are other options. You could, for instance, in the case of Pakistan, encourage the Pakistani government to send in the Pakistani army rather more liberally, shall we say. I Offer it is an open question. You don't have to know anything about, for instance, the Red Mosque siege a few years ago in Pakistan. I offer it as, an, as a genuine offer. If you think that sending the Pakistani army into areas to arrest, kill, detain terrorists would be less bloodthirsty than unmanned drones, I think you're on some of the stuff that Clive was talking about. Let me give the example of Yemen. It hasn't come up very quickly, but very briefly, because it's connected to the place we're in. Not very far from here in London, a young student, Omar Farouk Abdul Matalab, on Christmas Day 2009, tried to blow himself and the plane he was on up uh, over Detroit. He tried to do that because of a man who was an American citizen then in uh, Yemen, uh, Anwar Awalaki. He was deemed not to be able to be arrested. Nobody had the opportunity to read his Miranda rights. He was an imminent threat. He had been trying and, and had on many occasions actually already succeeded in encouraging people to carry out terrorist attacks in the West. The, arm, the Yemeni army had tried repeatedly to capture him and had failed. The only result of this was that an unmanned drone was the only way to end Awalaki's career. You know, Clive said hypocrisy breeds hatred. Look, lots of things breed hatred. I wish we could solve all the problems of the world. I wish there were no poverty. I wish there were no international disputes. I wish there were no border disputes, obviously. But until such a day, we need a range of options to deal with a threat that is not just imminent, but very, very widespread indeed. We have a range of options... Drones are an unpalatable part of them, but in the absence of better options, they're not only effective but moral as well, and the best way we have currently to hit the crocodile when it's nearest the boat. Thank you. (laughs) Douglas, don't forget that you've got to stay there. It's okay. Um, What Douglas has said is now going to be examined by our next panellist on the Hangout. 
He is a youth activist and writer from Yemen who has written for the New York Times and appeared on Al Jazeera and CNN, amongst other things. More importantly, he is the only one of our speakers tonight to have had direct personal experience of living with drones and to have witnessed the aftermath of a drone strike. Ladies and gentlemen, Ibrahim Mothana. Ibrahim, over to you. Uh, Thanks. Um, Perhaps I would like to start with uh, what Henry Louis Mencken once said, and he said, uh, for every complex problem, there's a, a solution that is easy, clear, and wrong. And I think this is exactly what was elaborated in what Douglas was speaking about. Uh, it's easy to bring about examples from here and there, but when it comes on the ground in Yemen, drones has been uh, terribly disastrous. I can speak about t- tens and tens of, of examples, but, but perhaps it's important to see them in a, in a context, to see them... Uh, and the, uh, to, to understand the domino effect that they are uh, creating. Uh, one of the examples is, is uh, the drone strike again against uh, the deputy governor of Malb. He was someone who's, uh, who's an ally in the war on terror. He's someone who was uh, cooperating both with the government, uh, who ha- had meetings with the Americans, and he was uh, someone who, has, who, has, who, who spent years and years trying to fight al-Qaeda and extremist groups uh, back in Yemen. He was killed mistakenly in a drone strike. That's part of the story. The second part of the story is that his tribe ended up closing the pipeline uh, the main pipeline in Malib, in his governorate, for a year, and that cost the Yemeni economy over $4 billion. And when we speak about $4 billion in, an, in, a, in a tiny and poor country uh, like Yemen, this is like close, closing uh, Wall Street for a year. And what that leads to is actually creating the exact environment where extremist groups, where groups like Al-Qaeda and Ansar al-Sharia can flourish. And this is exactly why we, why we had an increasing numbers of militants from 2009 until now. Uh, Brennan in 2009 was speaking about uh, 300 Al-Qaeda members. And his, in his last uh, U.S. policy talk, he was speaking about thousands. So it's important to ask why this is happening and, and, and why we are ex- creating the exact environment for such uh, groups to, to uh, flourish and, 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 and live. I agree with you, Douglas. Uh, terrorism is a problem. Al-Qaeda for me, for someone who lived in Yemen for his entire life, is, is, is an existential threat. But dealing with it with the wrong tools and, and uh, not, not solving it with the right means is, is really disastrous. What, what can we do? Uh, let, us see, let us see how, you know, what, what were the major achievements uh, against the, in the war of, or on terror in Yemen and how it was achieved. It wasn't achieved by drone strikes. It was achieved with cooperating with the local uh, uh, com- uh, com- communities. It was achieved uh, by uh, cooperating with the Yemeni army. And this is actually uh, how uh, Al-Qaeda and Ansar al-Sharia was kicked uh, away from Abyan and last week from Al-Bayda. It's not John strike. There's no easy solution. There's no shortcuts. Uh, the, second, the second thing, we cannot just... Um, deal with the uh, symptoms of such a problem with, without dealing with the underlying problems. We need to tackle the underlying economic, social problems, and the, the, this actually will take, will take years and years of, of uh, effort. It, and, and if all the money that was spent on strikes, if, if, the, if the 
cruise missile that cost over $500,000 and ended up killing 44 uh, civilians in Al Majala in Abyan was spent on their livelihood, was spent on making their life better, we would have not ended up having many and many people who joined terrorist groups from, these, uh, from that area. Finally, it's really important to know that the, it's not only white and black. There are, there are a lot of people who are in the gray zone. There are a lot of people who are, especially within Yemen tribes, uh, who are like stem cells, who if, if we cooperated with them, if we ended up working with them, will, uh, will be part of the effort against, uh, against terrorists. And it's, on, on the contrary, they could fight the government and ended, end up creating troubles if, if the family members are killed, if the areas are attacking it. Ibrahim, I'm going to ask Douglas to uh, very quickly, because we're running out of time in your slot, just very quickly to respond, um, and then I'm afraid we're going to have to, to wrap it up. Douglas? I, I want to very quickly thank you, Ibrahim, to uh, ask two uh, genuine questions. First of all, how long do you think it's going to take to sort out Yemen's economic problems? And secondly, what would you suggest the United States should have done since the Yemeni army could do nothing about Awalaki, since American troops were not going to put their feet on the ground in Yemen, what would you say they should have done instead of using a drone strike? Well, actually, what, 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 you know, it's, it's really important to see what drone strikes has, has actually created in Yemen. We're speaking, when the, when the drone program started in Yemen, it was actually targeting high-value targets. But what we ended up having is hundreds and hundreds of people who work in. Uh, so is that, are you saying nothing is better than, it would have been better to do nothing? Is that your answer to Douglas yeah, on that? Uh, uh, what, what, what should be done is actually cooperating with the tribes and, and uh, local communities exactly as we had from 2000 and 2005. And it was quite effective. By the end of 2006, we almost had no uh, Al-Qaeda activities in Yemen at that point. And not relying only on drones, because what we ended up saying, seeing in Yemen is that the, uh, the, uh, the consequences of it is much worse than what it really achieved. Thank you very much, Ibrahim. I think we're going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid, because we've got to go on. You will have a chance later on thank to you. ask further questions. Douglas, Ibrahim, thank, thank you, you very much for that. Um, our next panellist, I think it's true to say, knows more about the insides of drones and how they work than anyone else here today, possibly than anyone else. He is Professor of Artificial Intelligence and Robotics at the University of Sheffield and co-founder of the International Committee for Robot Arms Control and is currently on a Leverhulme Research Fellowship for the Ethical and technical appraisal of robots on the battlefield. I think it's safe to say he's not much in favour of them. He is Noel Sharkey. Thank you. It's been interesting here to see an audience of very normal-looking faces getting more and more and more miserable as time has gone on. <laughs> I've just... Now you're not looking miserable, OK? So I, it's my job to now make you look miserable again, I think. Um, well, well, I want to take a different approach than, than these guys, really, and I'm not going to talk about the insides of drones. But um, the US drone policy, if you can call it a policy, because they don't actually have a policy or a drone doctrine, which they should, I believe could destabilise world security as it stands. And that's what I'm going to be talking about. But before I say that, let me just say, I mean, 
I'm not a security advisor or any of these. I'm just a normal person. I've lived through the Cold War. I've lived through the Vietnam War and seen all the skullduggery in these various places like South America and stuff. And for the life of me, I just can't imagine how people have, you know, how sane people could be giving the CIA an Air Force. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. It just seems complete insanity. But let me just leave that there. Um, These strikes are at best legally questionable. When Philip Alston went to the UN about it, he went to the General Assembly in 2010. He was told by the United... He's the special rapporteur for extrajudicial killings. He was told by the United States that uh, essentially these are covert operations, mind your own business. He didn't mind his own business. He came back in November uh, that same year with a 30-page report looking at exactly why it breached international humanitarian law and humanitarian law. And that's the other problem. The United States, under George Bush, talked about declaring a war on terrorism. And everybody in the UK and Europe thought that was, he was a complete crazy guy. He was a, he was a twit. Uh, I still think that, but not for that reason, because that had uh, legal implications. What the United States was trying to do was to reframe the notion of war. So what they want to do is, is the idea that you don't attack states anymore, you can attack groups of individuals. Now, lots of lawyers I know, and I'm not one myself, talk about that what's really going on here is that they're breaching humanitarian law, which is quite different. Under humanitarian law, the CIA are committing murder, and they're civilians anyway, and we don't even know who's flying the planes. It could be military contractors. There's no transparency here. There's no way of knowing who the targets are. There's no way for these people to defend themselves legally or anything else. Um, But um, (laughs) let me leave that there. That was just a sort of little, little piece. World security. Um, Well, I think that now the United States is setting up some very, very dangerous precedents here. Um, This notion of action short of warfare... When the United States committed uh, drones to Libya, uh, what they should have done was after 60 days come back to Congress and tell them, you know, we've done this, can we have your permission to continue? This is called the War Powers Resolution and it was set up to stop Nixon being an imperial president. So they set up the War Powers Resolution, you can go out to war for 60 days, you can come back and you have to ask Congress's approval. Harold Coe, the chief lawyer for the State Department, said we don't need to ask for approval to Congress because we didn't commit any U.S. troops on the ground or U.S. forces in the air. It was just drones. Now, the problem with this is we've now given the president a right to go and attack anybody anywhere if he has any kind of grounds. And this is not a good thing for world security. And why why I say that is, and this is what really troubles me, not the United States. There are 76 countries now that have these drones. Not all of them are armed. Iran have two types of armed drones. China have two types of armed drones. Israel have several, and they're growing very quickly. Last year, the Chengdong industry in, the United, in, in China said that they'd identified in the whole of the market because the United States is not selling its attack drones, and neither are Israel to other people. So they've identified a hole in the market, and these are start going to, going to start being sold. Everybody wants armed ones because they're watching what the United States are doing. Now, only last week... If you read the newspapers in the Global Times, an interview with one of the uh, Chinese, he's the director of public security, admitted that they were considering using a drone to attack Myanmar, what we used to call Burma. And he was after a drugs baron there called Nao Guan. 
but in the event they happened to catch Naguan, and so he was arrested, but they might have used a drone. Now, what can we say to that because of the US policy? What can we say if China go and kill the Dalai Lama because India aren't arresting him and he's not in, in, in Chinese interests? Okay, so... Um, this is only the beginning, because my job as a robotics professor is to track the technology, and this is what brought me into it in the first place. From 2004, all of the US plans and roadmaps have been talking about, you know, this is the Model T Ford. The next step, we're going to automate them further and further and take pilots out of this altogether. Nobody's sitting in a remote control. We've already got the X47B, very advanced state of testing, which is fully autonomous. That means it works on its own with no uh, pilot on board and the DOD have just issued guidelines for this in November this year, uh, the, that's the Def- Defence Department of the United States and they're talking about weapons, robot weapons that once launched can engage and select and engage targets without further intervention. Now that's military speak for find people and kill them without a pilot, without a human controlling it and that's where I get really bothered. Um, now China are doing this as well. They're developing... This is all supersonic. It's all far too fast for us. The United States have tested the Falcon at 13,000 miles an hour so that they can reach anywhere on the planet within a 60-minute window. Now, we're not going to see this being deployed for about 10 years, maybe a little bit less. Um, so many countries are developing this. So this is the next logical step, and I think we need to draw a very hard line here and say that machines should not decide to kill people, never mind the botch up of the drones. And before long, machines will be doing all our killing for us. We're going to end up, in this rate of using all these drones, we're going to end up with a factory of slaughter where we just send out machines to do our killing for us. But don't worry, they're going to be coming back and killing us as well. So I don't think that, you know, we can't and must not let this happen. So we must stop this now. I'll stop there. Good, thank you. But don't. But do also. Thank you very much, Noel. Will you also stay there because? Yes, I will. We now have on the hangout, Mohammed Taki, who is a physician based in Florida and a columnist for the Daily Times of his home country, Pakistan. And uh, Mohammed, you have now six minutes to challenge what Noel has said and to present your own case more favourably disposed towards drones, I think you are, than than Noel clearly is. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, Off the bat, what I would like to tell Noel is that if he's really thinking that President Obama and Mullah Omar are going to go take it out in the parking lot or Medicine Square Garden, that's not going to happen. That's not happening anytime soon. You know, we are in modern warfare. We are going to talk about uh, advancement in technology uh, we are not at a pilotless drone stage as yet. As uh, Professor, uh, Professor Fair said, uh, there is a pilot who is actually technically a combatant, whether it's a civilian contractor or a military man sitting in Nevada or elsewhere. But uh, what, what strikes me is that uh, how, uh, how the, the fancy intellectuals are insulated with the actual cost of war and what people on the ground in Pakistan and Afghanistan are going through. Let, let me just say it clearly that the legal, moral, and just war is hardly a one-way street. It's not. The just war has a shared 
shared moral language, vocabulary, concept that still remains alien, I would say, unfortunately, to many indoctrinated zealots, and unfortunately, equally to some human rights campaigners and certain jurists, uh, unfortunately, some of whom we have on the panel here. When, when thousands are being killed in Pakistan and Afghanistan, it is immoral, immoral, I reiterate that to stop the, it is not immoral to stop the killers as they conceive, plot and execute assassinations and targeted killings of the doctors, healthcare workers, polio vaccinators. They bomb places of worships and schools and ramp automated pre-programmed human killing machines that none of these guys would ever talk about into bazaars packed with men, women, children. I don't speak as a proponent of war, but as an advocate for my people, my people from Peshawar, from Kuram, from Quetta, from Karachi, from all over, who are being butchered as we speak right this minute. Two weeks ago, there was a bombing which ripped apart it in the heart of Quetta, killing over 150 people. I speak to this forum and the world at large as a constituent of the state minister and MP of my hometown, Peshawar, Bashir Belor, a bulwark against terrorism who was martyred by a suicide bomber half a mile away from the house that I grew up in. He was also my family friend. I talk on behalf of our cheerful neighbor, Abul Hassan Jafri, who had a whole magazine of bullets pumped into his body as he left home for work. I used to call him uncle when I was growing up. I talk on behalf of, my ch of Ghulam Farid, who would have been 44 this very month, 44 years old, with a wonderful family and kids had a jihadist terrorist bullet not shattered his skull. Farid and I used to play field hockey every single evening when we were kids in Peshawar. I can go on and on and I can name at least 25 people just from my neighborhood, from my street. Muhammadullah Safi, Mia Iftikhar. These are the people who were killed by suicide bombers. But I don't hear anything about these people. You know, this is not sexy because they have not been killed by a drone attack. It is not sexy to go after people who are not, you know, it's, it's fad to go after the United States. You know, just ram the big board fully. I, but, I, but I really don't speak just on behalf of the people that I had a chance to break bread with, but also the thousands of other Pashtun killed, maimed, traumatized by the jihadist terrorists. I speak for the thousands of Barelvis and Sufis who were blown to smithereens by Athiri suicide bombers as these guys were providing, were proving their rituals on holy shrines that they visited. And I would be remiss not to mention the systematic extermination of the Shia Muslims, especially the Hazaras of Quetta, the Shia Pashtun of the tribal region Quran. Genocide of Shia is underway in Pakistan and the Takfiri jihadists and the patrons perpetrated. The killers of all these individuals and groups have two things in common. Mind you, they subscribe to an ideology of hate, and on top of that, they use as sanctuary areas of Pakistan over which that country has absolutely no sovereignty or it has opted to share or cede that sovereignty to these killers. Chechens. Mohammed, can I just stop you there a minute to ask yes. Noel whether he has a counter-argument to your impassioned plea to see that the death toll works both ways? Well, if the, I have to say to you, I, I don't know what the argument is that you're proposing, but I'd have to say to you, if the motion here tonight had been, are the actions of terrorists 
um, moral, both moral and effective, I would have opposed that motion as well. I think what we're trying to talk about here is this the appropriate technological response or is a technological response the proper way to go about it? Is this, for instance, we don't have enough empirical evidence, but is this the best recruitment tool? Does asymmetric warfare cause more terrorism? Is it going to bring back more bombs to our shores in the UK? Okay, because people have not got a better way of fighting than that. Listeners to the Intelligence Squared podcast are eligible for a special offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own website and online shop. The easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, responsive designs, and 24-7 customer support teams means you can create a beautiful design website for as little as £5 a month. If you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code INTELLIGENCE to get 10% off your first purchase. Now, okay, with, with that in mind, you know, what, what I was saying is that with these Chechens, Uzbeks, Arabs, and Afghan insurgents, it's virtually a United Nations of terrorists holed up in Waziristan. Every time a Hellfire missile takes one of these jihadists, the killers, out, one innocent family or many innocent families in Pakistan and Afghanistan have one less plotter, one less bomber, one less human drone to worry about. These are human drones that we are talking about. What would be really ethically abhorrent, immoral, and unjust is to stand by and not do anything as these sub-state actors, these transnational terrorists, continue with their killing unabated. It is responsibility of the international community, not just the United States, do everything possible to prevent extermination of what these taxpayers call apostates. Mohammed, I'm going to have to call, call an end there because we've run out of, of, of your time. Thank you and thank you, Noel, very much indeed. Thank you. Before we commence with the second part of our evening, which is going to be a challenging argument between our four panellists here and the four panellists on the Hangout, I should just like to acquaint you with your views on this subject before you had the opportunity to be persuaded by the wisdom of our panellists here. That is to say, you were all asked to take a vote when you came in, as were some of the people on the Hangout. And this is the way the distribution of opinion goes before when we started tonight. And the interesting thing is going to be to see how it changes at the end of the evening. But this is how you felt when you came in. 23% of you were in favour of the motion. 48% were against it. However... It is also true that 29% professed themselves in two minds or they didn't know. And so there is very much to play for from that agnostic contingent. Um, And we look forward to see how the vote transpires after we've had yet more argument and discussion, including from yourselves, a little later on. But now... um, I hope we have our Hangout panel with us. Good. We are going to start by talking here amongst ourselves. I would like to just ask one question of um, you, David. 
which really has to do with what one might call the economics of identification. I was interested to see that uh, General Stanley McChrystal himself, somebody who had actually been in charge of the drone program, expressing a certain scepticism, not antipathy, to um, the readiness to to use drones, and for this reason that he, he stressed the point that you cannot do without human intelligence. All these arguments we've been having about the numbers and the impropriety of the figures or the veracity of them really all boils down in the end to the ability to know that you actually have identified somebody who really is um, a danger and a threat and who fulfills the three criteria that were referred to. Um, And if it is the case that drones, to a certain extent, replace the onus of identification, that the economics of identification become much more easily ones where you just say, well, we think... As far as I know, the first targeted drone strike was of a man who resembled Osama bin Laden because he was tall and he was surrounded by smaller um, farmers. He turned out to be a farmer. It was not a great precedent for the beginning of the targeted You're stroke. You're not helping me here, are you, Jeremy? But, no, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just bringing... But the question is, do, is there any way you can get round the problem in favour of your argument, the identity problem? How do we know and how could the pilot at the other end know that he actually is looking at a terrorist rather than someone who looks like a terrorist? Well, um, let me first refer you to uh, the senior Pakistani journalist Imtiaz Ghul who wrote a book about the, uh, the areas that are the areas of strike in uh, Pakistan, which is actually accounts for by far and away the biggest number of drone strikes and the biggest number of casualties. And this in his book, and he's spoken to all of them, The Most Dangerous Place, he said this, drone strikes are increasingly precise and intelligence is improving, with several Al-Qaeda-linked leaders killed by drones in February 2010, including Kari Zafar, a rabidly anti-Shia member of Lasha Ijangvi, wanted in connection with the deadly 2006 bombing of the US consulate in Karachi, and Mohammed Haqqani, the 30-year-old younger brother of Sir Rajuddin Haqqani, who's been leading the Haqqani network in and around North Waziristan and Afghanistan's Paktia province. It became clear that the United States and Pakistan are coordinating their efforts more closely than ever. Now, that is the best uh, intelligence that we have from the best journalists in Pakistan, not somewhere else, not people who parachute themselves in for five minutes, etc., and then go off again, etc., but people are on the ground. So, of course, it is dependent upon intelligence. Now, I next question you have to ask yourself is, and this was the point I was beginning to come to, actually, in fact, we do know quite a lot about who does the targeting, and we certainly know a lot more about who takes the decisions on targets than we know about conventional military operation. And as Paddy Ashton also said in the Times the other day, it is not possible now for somebody like Barack Obama, having identified himself as one of the major people involved in targeting, to hide behind the notion of military error and so on when it comes to as he would have done with more conventional weapons. So ask yourself this. Is Barack Obama, because it's easy to take a cheap shot at George Bush and everybody does it and Noel did it uh, and so on. That's fine. But is Barack Obama a stupid guy who sits there thinking it doesn't really matter who we target, it doesn't really matter who we get, as long as I can tell the American people that I've sent 160 drones over and they've killed 400 people who somebody tells me 
might just be Al-Qaeda or might just be Pakistani Taliban, but I don't really care. That's my job OK, done. that's a point well made. Mohammed is going to reinforce it at some point, but before that, we want to get a counter from you, Clive. Yeah, I th- you know, I've got to say, uh, David, I'm surprised that you have such touching faith in some of these intelligence people. You know, I, when you look at Guantanamo Bay, we had exactly the same assertions. They said they were the worst of the worst. They did their intelligence assessment by actually talking to them and interrogating them and having them there. They said that 35 out of 779 were innocent. We've now proven 85% are innocent. And right now in Guantanamo Bay, 52% of the people left there have been cleared for release. Clive, are you confident about that word proven? Yeah, yeah, I am, because are those are things that have been conceded by the US government. Now, we don't have to go to 85% to concede. And I have a security clearance. I can't tell you what I see or I'll have to kill you. But I'm going to tell you with absolute that right certainty now. that the intelligence these people rely on is utter drivel. And that's why we have a court of law. No, Mohammed, can I just... He was keen to come in. Mohammed, you seem to... How do you respond to this point that all those um, evil um, human bombers that you were talking about are not actually the people who are being eliminated? It's, it's 85% of them are actually um, innocent no, that farmers. That was I know, well, but I think he was trying to project the same percentage as far as I, I hope he wasn't. What I wanted to say is that, you know, the, the people who are so dead against the drone attacks and they keep, uh, you know, padding up these civilian casualties like uh, our friend here, Steve, and uh, the, the question is, have they actually verified any of these? I have been begging for ICRC and Doctors Without Borders and other agent agencies to be independently allowed to go into these areas to verify the civilian casualties. Now, uh, Reprieve does a little job of actually subcontracting a Pakistani organization, using people from Islamabad and Peshawar, actually paying for their logistics, and then coming up with a New York Times, uh, uh, an NYU Stanford University study, which has more academic loopholes in it than the Swiss cheese I'm going to have for my lunch today. You know, they're basically cherry-picking the evidence. Well, Clive, uh, since Clive is the founder of Reprieve, uh, can we... we sorry are, sorry we to are, go back to you, but I think you, you no, need look, to say something. Dr. Taki, we are doing exactly what you asked us to do, which we have an independent journalist who goes around taking photographs, gathering pictures of the dead people. Now, you can have your little fantasy world and say we're fabricating all of this for some bizarre left-wing conspiracy, but it's just not true. I agree with you that we want... You know, transparency. You're totally right. It's not us that's stopping it. It's the government and it's the CIA. Christine, so agree with that. The, Christine, can, 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 can I bring in here. Christine here? Yes, please do. I, I have such strong, report, strong feelings about that risible NYU Stanford report. He says that this is what he does, but this is actually not true. Sorry, if Christine, can you just tell our audience? To, yes, just just exactly. give us a bit of background. Yeah, so basically, they approached NYU and Stanford Law to do a report on not drones, true. which ultimately, by the way, if that's not true, you need to take it up with Stanford and NYU because this is explicitly written in the report. They approached right? us. I use this. Hang on, hang on, hang on. The no, they no, in this question is reprieve. Are you saying reprieve approach? Yes. According yes. to the NYU and Stanford report, which I use in my methods class as an example of horrific so-called research, um, they say that reprieve approached the law clinic. And, off, and asked them to do this study. They then used a Pakistani partner, the, what is it, the Foundation for uh, Fundamental Rights, to then go and arrange a series of interviews, which totaled 130. 
Selection bias is how I would characterize that. 69 of that 130 were directly organized by Reprieve. All of their logistics was paid for by Reprieve. If people They're don't false. think that that's a conflict, no, this is according to their report. And if you have issues with it, sir, you should take it up with your client because this is how they describe it in their report. Making further points, the individuals that were interviewed for this project were at no point subjected to independent verification. What do I mean by that? There were no forensics experts to actually examine whether or not the injuries that were reported and allegedly photographed are in fact consistent with shrapnel resulting from drones. And let me be clear for the purposes of, of, of the audience understanding here that what you're objecting to, according to you, is that the num this all resulted in inflation in the number of innocent casualties. Is that what you're saying? Actually, is that what, what you're I'm arguing? Is, what I'm actually saying is that we, no one can say who has been killed by drones, whether they're innocent or not because there's no transparency. But what I will say Michael. is that the report that Reprieve commissioned essentially from Stanford and NYU was not research. It was clientelism. Thank in you. the American context, we had an anti-abortion group do something OK, similar. I'm going to stop we you on the anti-abortion group for the absurdity that it is. because I need to bring Michael in here. Michael, um, is yes. not the fact that no one can say, to use Christine's words, that nobody knows what the figures are itself a, a warning that one of the big problems of this, that, what, that, it, that it ushers in a process which no one can really say about. Is that... Uh, that that's, that's basically what I was going to jump in and say, which is that part of the problem that we have here is that the U.S. government keeps the process by which they pick people for drone strikes entirely in the dark. Um, what we know, for example, is that President Obama has what they call Terror Tuesdays, where they talk about potential targets of drone strikes. This is done entirely within the executive branch with very, very limited congressional oversight and very little scrutiny from the courts. And so the danger is they are required to make a distinguish, the distinction about competent status, decide if someone is competent, but we have no idea how they do that. Now, no government is ever going to lay its cards on the table entirely and say, this is everything we know and this is why we're doing what we're doing. But the extent to which the executive branch has accorded itself this power is hugely dangerous. Douglas, all right, just, just the, the let Michael have a like, second point. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. The second point I'd like to make is part of what the shift that drones has produced has been a change from designating the, or, or deciding the kind of competent status before the strike towards moving to what they call signature strikes, where patterns of behavior justify the strike. And that illustrates one of the things, the dangers of drones, that when you have this technology, it becomes very easy to say, well, we'll shift to using patterns of behavior, and that will decide if we target this person. And that itself creates a whole risk. But just before Douglas comes in here, wouldn't you say, Michael, that these are rectifiable problems, that if you were to be more stringent in your criteria of what does and, and, and does not um, satisfy a reasonable strike, and if you were to have more judicial overview of when the strike is made, that some of these problems that you're addressing would be surmountable ones. Douglas, you're... Absolutely. I'd like to see the drones program brought into the sunlight in some respect. And there's limits to that. But bring it into the sunlight. Let the Congress have the normal level of oversight that it does over military operations. Give the courts some scrutiny and provide a check on the executive branch. That would go some way towards making sure the drones target people who maybe should be targeted as opposed to making accidental strikes on innocent civilians. Douglas, would you go along with that? I just wanted to pick up on this because uh, I think certainly on this side we agree that there is not enough known about this. We would like more known. I wish that more newspapers, I wish more investigative journalists had spent recent years looking into this. It is very striking that something, sorry to harp on about this, but something which if George Bush had been doing 
would have been all over your front pages from day one, has taken all of these years for people, in particular at the moment of the left in America and Britain, to even wake up to. Because there has been a sense, well, this is our guy, Barack Obama is our guy, we want him to get re-elected, so let's at least hold it until the 2012 election, let's wait till he's back in the White House at least, let's not spoil the party. I think this is an indictment of the profession which I'm a part of. But, but there is a legitimate reason to be concerned about the studies that are being cited at the moment. And I just wanted to focus on the one. One of the organizations which has done a lot of work on this and is repeatedly cited is the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. This is also the Bureau of Investigative Journalism that fingered as a rapacious, rampant paedophile an entirely innocent Tory peer, Lord McAlpine. Now look, if we're going to give the amount of, o of oversight and analysis that was rightly done on the Bureau of Investigative Journalism's analysis of Lord McAlpine, then I think that we should do the same with drones. But people do not do it. And there's a reason. Because there is a lobby of people who want to believe the worst. They want the worst figures when it's to do with America. They want America to have killed the largest number of people. Some of us hope well, just that going back America on the, on, kills on the as question few of figures, people as possible. As Clive, I think you're, 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 you're owed a last word well, in defence of your own. a very, very short one. Look, I would be the first to concede that I'd love to have more data, I'd love to have more stuff, we're doing everything we can to do it. But Christine, please, why don't you do your damn study yourself and show us how it should be done. I would be so grateful for that and I wouldn't be critical. Well, we are. No, you're no an that's our job. You're, an, ad you're an advocacy group and you're not a journalist, you're a lawyer. And what why you do is... You um, do sorry, and what you do is advocate. It's not the same thing. I, ha I try to advocate for the truth. I'd love you to do it. Uh, you do it, David, except the comments about me uh, going behind my uh, house to take a leak. That's the only time that uh, I've disagreed. Well, I said I didn't believe you did it. You told I me you know, did it. I know, I know, yeah. But that's the only time you haven't told the total truth and everything. Ibrahim, I know you want to come in at this point. Will you? Are you there, Ibrahim? Yeah. 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 <clears throat> well, I just want to highlight quickly on two points. First... Um, our friends on the other side of the house are calling for journalists to go and research or drones issues while, I mean, the U.S. government itself is putting a lot of restrictions of Yemeni journalists, for instance, who are trying to uh, tackle the drone issue. Uh, journalist Abdulillah Haider Shaya, who revealed the massacre in Al-Majala, was actually uh, uh, taken to jail. He's in jail until this moment. And in 2011, when he was given amnesty, uh, President Obama personally asked the Yemeni government to keep him in jail. So, it, you know, they're putting a lot of lines in front of investigating such issues. The second important issue is, is redefining uh, the term of militants. Yeah, it's, it's all right to say that we've killed hundreds of militants in, in, in Yemen, but if you go and see how they define it, they define it as any male uh, uh, of military age. So, yeah, if you go and see the hundreds of people who are killed, uh, probably they don't have anything uh, to do with Al-Qaeda, but they, they are militants under this definition, which is quite awkward. Can I um, pick up with Mohammed here? And just before you come in, Mohammed, um, I'd like to draw the interesting contrast between your, your experience and Ibrahim's. Both of you um, live or know very well territories which have been subjected to drone attacks. Both of you, uh, and yet you are absolutely of the opinion that this is the, is, is the best way to dealing with it. Why do you think you are not more of a like mind with Ibrahim in thinking that the reaction to the 
um, the, the, the drone attacks create a reaction which is, you know, a, 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 that the cure is worse than the disease. The, the answer is very simple here. You know, what you're talking about is, uh, are we going to have use post-bellum or justice after war? What are the outcomes? But I would draw your attention to what we are talking about is what was happening before 2001. Uh, from 1996 to 2001, the Taliban in Afghanistan had a field day. There was no big, bad, bad U.S. In, in the picture. They were torturing people, killing people, thousands of Shiites killed in Mazar Sharif and Tizarajat, all sorts of terrorism going on in Pakistan. You know, that was not provoked by drones. Drones started in 2004. Pakistan had ceded its territory to uh, terrorists like Naik Muhammad Wazir. I, I would... I would draw the attention of the House to the 2004 agreement or 2003 agreement with Nekam al-Wazir where the Pakistani General Saffir Hussain goes, leaves his gun at the door to go and confer and actually signed a very degrading agreement with the terrorists. Now that guy was taken out in the drone attack. So you, know, uh, you don't have sovereignty there. Thank so you, Mohammed. I mean, I just want to bring, bring, bring I, no... I want to add one more point, okay. I, I, quickly if I could. And, and, and I, I would draw direct attention to the political agenda of these so-called humanitarian activists. Now, uh, what we have here is Clive's organization working hand in, in glove with the Pakistan Tariq and Saf of the creditor turned politician Imran Khan, who has a clear-cut anti-American agenda. Imran Khan's ex-wife is distributing cameras for Clive. You know what they are doing is they are not doing research. It is not humanitarian. Had it been humanitarian, they would have been looking at the Shia, the Bahraini. All right, thanks for that. That's, that's a very interesting point, and it does lead, Noel, to um, a question which deserves an answer from you, which is: Do you think there is something slightly Pollyannaish in your attitude about the idea? that you can apply due process to situations which quite conspicuously will never, ever make themselves open to it? No, I don't think so at all, because there's been opportunities, certainly in, in Somalia, to arrest people, and the discussion, and somebody was killed recently, weren't they, who was just released from prison. Maybe it was in the Yemen, I'm not sure which one. Just released from prison, and they were killed, although they could have been arrested, and, the, and their brother is suing the United States because... Um, somebody from the DOD leaked it that it was much easier and you can blame Clive for this if you like uh, <laughs> but it was much easier to kill someone than to take them to Guantanamo and they didn't believe the security in Yemen was good enough so due process could have been applied there but wasn't can and that, that's, a, that's a real problem. No, you've had enough to say. No, no, but no. I would like to say... Yeah, shut up, man. I'm on your side Yeah, I know no. you are, but even so, I want to say something more about that because um, I think that also in the panel, I, I don't like the kind of uh, slight sort of uh, personal slurs that are going on. I'm sorry, I'm an academic. I'm used to academic discussion. I'm not used to people saying... Goodness me, if you're an academic, you must be used to personal slurs. Personal, yeah, no, no, not really. Not in my field. Not from me. Uh, mm. uh, but I don't, I don't like things like, you know, the Bureau of Investigative Journal journalism's reports on drone strikes, which she's been really careful with. I've looked at their methodology academically. It's very strong. And the fact that one of them made a mistake about a paedophile and resigned is irrelevant to what they do about drone strikes. And that's just nonsense and a silly thing to say. But... It gets to the heart of it. It gets to the heart of it. They don't. Well, it doesn't they, get to the heart of anything. It doesn't get to the heart of anything. If I found out that somebody from your organisation was a paedophile, would that invalidate everything you had to say ever? No, I imagine if somebody no, from your university wrote a paper pretending that somebody I, who wasn't a paedophile was a paedophile, then it would cast some 
doubt I, on your university. On the whole university? Yes. You think okay. that every think department might be This is drones. Yes, okay. Can I ask a very simple question? But I think the methodology was good. I'll take your question first, then yours. We are coming to an end of this time, so if you've got very pertinent questions to ask... David, we haven't heard it from no, you for you, a while. You said this, and it seems to me to go to the core. You said, we don't attack states anymore, we attack groups of people. It's a very bad thing. Which state attacked America on 9-11? Uh, no, no state, particularly. No state. Yeah. Thank you. But Could, so what? You sound like you, you're saying there like you're some sort of prosecutor. Thank you, my lord. My, my rest, my case. What's the argument there? Can you not really, really not see What's what the, the argument, argument is? No, I can't. The argument is that we don't actually face enemies who are states anymore. And that was made evident by 9-11. And I am I'm amazed know. that you cannot see that. Well, it was made evident by the IRA. Wasn't it? A long time ago. It's made evident in the US War of Independence. So what? Does that mean we should go into countries that we're not at war with anymore? It means that, that we go have, into any country we like and it, kill people it means, randomly? It means that you are being attacked by and you are at war with people who are not states. No, that's yes, what it's, it a, it's a bit of a problem, but maybe we're not handling it in the right kind of way. That was a well, we might want to ask what is the cause is. That is whole debate is about. And I'm going okay. to... Uh, I'm going, to, I'm going to pull in Christine here, who I, I hope you've been listening to that interchange, Christine, and, and are going to solve it in one quick blow. Yeah, look, there's just a couple of issues. BIJ does not have a sound methodology. What they're basically doing is circular reportage. They claim that they're doing independent... Christine, I, this is fascinating, but, but I think, just from the audience point of view, more talk on drones now and less on methodology. I think there, there, oh, there's been a very yeah, interesting... But, but, but discussion actually, of methodology, you know, the, the but... problem is you can't have a conversation on drones if you don't have a solid understanding of the data. And so this, so methodology might seem kind of boring to you, but if we're basically having a discussion... No, it doesn't remotely sound boring data, to me. It doesn't remotely sound boring. I'm really, let, let, I... let me make another point about FATA, going back to the point that, Ms., that Dr. Taki made. I am so exhausted with organizations like Reprieve who'd go out of their way to avoid pro-drone Pakistanis. They act as if Pakistani victims are somehow not important. It turns out, going back to data methodology, there's pretty sound statistical evidence that links an increase in drone strikes to a decrease in violence in Pakistan. And I'm gonna go back to this point because even though the uh, legislation that authorizes drone strikes says they're only good for Al-Qaeda, in fact, we're killing Pakistan's terrorists. So there are legal implications. That said, the primary beneficiary of these drone strikes are actually Pakistanis. If you ask people in Fatah, and I dare say the reprieve folks have not themselves gone to Fatah, uh, um, and you were to ask them what they think about this situation... Have you, have you done that, Clive? I, I, went. I, I have, and I have well, wait, wait, we want to hear whether Clive has. I feel sure you have, Christine. Clive, I you. Went, I went with the much, much maligned former cricketer, Imran Khan, oh, yes. on our first You, you did not go to Fata. You we did not go to Fata with him. We, you don't even know your, your geography. Excuse me. We Can we just, uh, Christine, give... Christine, let Clive speak. We, and, we were going into South Waziristan... And you which were is where? No, we weren't turned back. As a matter of fact, you're totally wrong on that. You weren't there, Christine. I was. Okay, we were going. Sure. We weren't turned back at all. We we were met by massive crowds who you'll say were all political hacks of Imran Khan. I found them wonderful people who were so happy that someone was going there. Imran Khan more than me. 
Who cared about them? Because you are the, aware the, the, that drone strikes take place me. in North Waziristan. You are and, aware that there's two. Okay, Waziristan. okay. The fact that <laughs> I am the fact think that, that you may be testing the audience's patience at the moment, and very, very patient well, they have the been. Which is obviously appalling. That's actually not fair. The question that Christine Fair has raised is the sort of quite simple one of whether or not Clive got to where he said he was going. Exactly. And we, we did everything we... And the we, drone strikes... And the answer, all right, and the answer, and the answer I just... Answer, I need to behind all this is, no, he didn't. No, we got within... Is that the answer, Clive? We got to 15 miles from the border of South Waziristan where there have been lots of drone strikes, and we were not turned back. We met... 30,000 people who came out to meet us. 15 miles is not in South Waziristan. And the drone strikes are in North Waziristan. They're in both, Christine. You don't know anything about drone strikes. Enough of that. I think the Waziristan question is fascinating, but it is beginning probably not to be the exact question that many... May I just ask a question of their team? I crave your patience, everyone. I'm going to let Clive ask one one. question Uh, of this side, and then we're going to hand it over to you. And it's only this, and it's a simple question. I think we can all agree, looking at the UN statistics, if indeed there are 5 million people killed by the illegal use of drugs each year, that the war on drugs, as opposed to the war on terror, is another big problem. And I've had a lot of dealings, not friendly ones, with the cartels in Colombia. Given that we can't control them there, do you favour that we throw out the rule of law there too and use drones to kill the cartel people in Colombia? In other words, do we take this drone warfare beyond the Quick war answer. on terror into the war on drugs? So, I, If the Colombian government, uh, by the process in our democratically elected government, asks for help with the use of drones in taking out uh, the next Drug generation drugs. of Escobars... I don't see how you could have any more objection to that than you would do by saying you would sell them the aeroplanes and the helicopters. I can't see what the difference in in, in principle is. It sure does away with the rule of law, which we've had for a long time. We will ask the audience, who have been very patient, and we now move on to the third session, whether they can see a difference. Maybe we will have some questions on that point from you. I'm going to open it up to the floor now before taking questions from people around the world on the net. But first of all, it is your turn. Please make um, your questions brief and to the point and um, hold your hand up high so that I can see them and preferably stand up when you ask the question so that everyone can see you. Um, The mic will come to you. Do feel free, indeed I encourage you, to direct your question at specific people, not just here, but any of our panel on uh, the Google Plus Hangout. And uh, right... Take first question from the gentleman in the second back row in the middle there. Hi, this is uh, relatively sort of general to anyone, but maybe Clive. Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts sort of going forwards and picking up some of the themes that maybe uh, Ibrahim talked about in terms of creating more militants than we're actually killing and going forward with uh, John Brennan's appointment to the CIA. Because on one hand, he's called for greater transparency in how we go about um, targeting, but then on the other hand, he's been a great proponent for such scary things as uh, signature strikes and the disposition matrix. I've got to say, my, my own view is that the best approach to, to preserving our liberties is to respect those liberties and to behave decently. And the best way to make enemies 
uh, is to be hypocritical and throw those liberties out of the door. It seems to me that if you think about the, the, the level of extremism uh, in September 2001, uh, there was this horrible crime that was committed against America, but the number of extremists there were then, and you compare it to the number of people who hate America today as a result of Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo Bay, and our other just bad mistakes, which include drones, we have exacerbated extremism in a massive way. I don't have the simplest solution that's going to make the world utopia tomorrow, but I do think that the way we minimize extremism around the world is to adhere to our values and treat people according to our values and not violate our Michael, own Michael, you're on the Hangout. Would you go along with that? Do you think that, in, and added to that, that drone strikes actually exacerbate terrorism in the evidence that you've seen? I think it's very difficult if to say any. whether that whether it exacerbates terrorism in the sense because that's an empirical question and and I haven't seen evidence to suggest one way or the other that that's true. I think the greater danger is in the short term that they encourage a significant level of opposition to the local government. I mean one of the things that Christine pointed out is that we're taking on local Pakistani groups for example. Does this then turn Pakistani population against the United States? A, a June 2012 Pew survey suggested 74% of Pakistanis consider the United States an enemy. And if David, that's true, then it gets oh, harder Douglas. and harder for that government to say yes to the United States. Do you want to States. respond to that local government point, Douglas? I, I wanted to respond to Clive's point, if that's okay. Sorry. Perfectly interesting point that that was. Um, the, um, look, if, if terrorism is caused by reaction to terrorism, which is what Clive is saying, then what do you do when you are struck by terrorists? I repeat the point I tried to make earlier, maybe it didn't make it very well. If you cannot send people in, it would be nice to be able to send in a whole phalanxes of lawyers to go and arrest people, read them their Miranda rights in Yemen and so on, and take them back to a fair trial in the US or so on. But if you cannot do that, what do you do? If you try to state-build in some of these countries, you don't get very much love. If you try to do targeted strikes against individuals, you don't get very much love. Reacting to terrorism and trying to stop terrorism in all sorts of contexts will not get you very much love from other people, but it will do the job, if you do it well, that the, the President of the United States has to do, which is to keep the American people safe. Two American presidents now have managed that. President Bush and President Obama have managed to stop any repeat of 9-11 on American shores. That is their job. That is their number one job. It would be wonderful if it was also possible to stop any attacks on the United States and simultaneously be loved by everybody. But nobody has yet come up with a way in which to do that. Okay. Thank you for that. Another question, please. Gentlemen, first of all, in right in the centre here, and then we'll go over to you afterwards. Just very quickly, um, do the proponents of the motion assert that drone strikes are legal? And if so, what is the basis for that belief? David. Um, uh, I'm not an expert on international law, but... I, even I could tell that Clive had a problem, more of a problem than he was allowing, because it was all predicated on the notion that because the Pakistani government said overtly that it was against drone strikes, it didn't matter that actually they were clearly cooperating with them, letting the places being built and so on. So it strikes me that that is not a case that would easily float, let's say, over here or in America, no matter what happened to the case in Pakistan and so on. Um, there is a very strong argument 
that the places that the targeting and so on is based upon people, and this is an argument they'd have to make in court and so on, but there's a very strong argument, are, ba- are attacking people who would otherwise attack us or attack allies of ours. Otherwise, and frankly, if it wasn't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't actually be doing it. I am reasonably sure that such a thing would give you a good basis, would give the Obama administration a good basis in law. But can I just say something about this? It is often the contention, always the contention of people, that this, that or the other thing, usually done by the United States, is illegal. Uh, and so on. And in certain some but we're talking about uh, things like the invasion of Iraq, um, actually further back, the action in Kosovo and so on. But what is remarkable about it is there is not one successful case about the prosecution of these military campaigns. The actual prosecution in principle that has actually been taken in international law. Not one. I know that no. Mohammed wants to answer this, but since we only have one lawyer on the panel and he's sitting on my left... Over to you, Clive, on that one. Well, only very briefly. Look, it is ludicrous to argue in a democratic society that a government can say publicly that they're not in favour of it and secretly say kill our citizens. It's Pakistan, which has an election. Apparently, I'm supporting Imran Khan. But it is ludicrous. And I'm just telling you, the law is emphatically clear. We've just sued the British government over it. No one's arguing against the fact that it's illegal. So that's clear. That what is illegal, to be clear? That that it's illegal to kill people in Pakistan. Different question in Afghanistan, I agree. But in Pakistan, no question. And it's a different question in Afghanistan because that is a declared theater of war. war, Mm. Okay. Uh, Mohammed, you wanted to say something on this point. I have to disagree with Clive. You know, the sections of Pakistan that are being targeted with the drones are really out of the Pakistani control. The Pakistan does not exercise sovereignty in that region. It is very well known the Pakistani army has been dragging its feet for the last four years to run any operation, any successful operation of the sort in North Waziristan. Now, you will also find tribal agencies like Quram agencies where people are very pro-drone. And another thing is that these are transnational and sub-state actors who may not even benefit from the application of international humanitarian law. And it is an extension of the conflict in Afghanistan. The Haqqani network is a belligerent in Afghanistan. The United States is well within its rights. It's a just cause, right intention, last resort, legitimate authority, proportionality, and probability to go after these safe havens in Afghanistan in Afghanistan as well as in Waziristan. I I need to get questioners in, but you will will have your chance. Thank you very much. Clive is wrong. (laughs) Um, Gentleman uh, sitting in the fourth row from the front, you, yes. Hi. Uh, Everyone seems to be in agreement that it's hard to get um, uh, accurate information, uh, statistics, to, to actually be able to carefully judge whether it's useful, whether it's something which is killing innocent people or not, whether you're getting people who would be committing acts of terror. Um, I don't really understand why that people who want to, to use drones think that supports their argument, though. Um, it seems to be uh, the lady on the screen who is criticising attempts to gather the information. Um, and surely if it's only the American government who has that information, the fact they're not sharing it, isn't particularly well, promising. I'm just wondering... A very good question, who, who, and where, I think we should put it to the lady on the screen. Christine. First of all, the lady is Dr. Fair, so you can save that sexist crap for someone else. But going to criticizing research, I actually do Christ. research. I do a substantial amount of it. My critique is not that people are doing research. My critique is that they are not actually doing research. They're actually doing a hack job 
They are making statements that are not supported by their empirical methods or data collected, and that if they actually want to do this correctly, they should stop having journalists and activists do this work, but rather collaborate with social scientists who actually have research methods. If you go to my website, christinefair.net, you will see that I have routinely done very large studies in Pakistan. So I'm not criticizing research. I'm criticizing activism, commissioning clientele as products, and then calling it research. I, I, I so get that point, Christine. I, I get that point from the professor on the screen. But I Indeed. think the point made by the gentleman in the audience was that um, since nobody knows what's going on, why does it support your argument? I mean, the, the, the facts may be preposterous, they may be uh, ill-researched, but if that's the case, doesn't that argue for greater caution about striking and killing people than more en enthusiasm if, if for I, it? As I said when I made my opening statements, I initially rejected participating in this because I didn't like the way in which the, the, the movement was titled. I am much more uh, circumspect than, than you seem to suggest. My particular comments about drones are only pertaining to FATA. And, and let me walk through what the problems are in FATA. Um, there have been FATA, a lot of incidentally, again, just very quickly, the tribal is, areas. Is the tribal areas of Pakistan, yes. Yes, and so there have been some Panglossian suggestions that would be great in an ideal world. But the reason why the drone strikes are restricted to the tribal areas is because that is an area where Pakistan's constitution does not apply. Um, in addition to that, there are no police forces in the tribal areas. This is simply a fact. Now, there, the issue is, of course, Pakistan could change the law, but it has chosen not to because it has benefited from using FATA as a place from which to launch other militants, right? So the alternatives are you send the Pakistan army in, and they've displaced 4 million plus when they went into South Waziristan and in SWAT. By the way, drones are not displacing anyone, contrary to reprieve's uh, suggestions. Thank you, Christine. I'm going to have to stop you there because time is short. Douglas, do you want to come so, in? So what's the alternative? No, sorry. Venkan. No, you next. And Ibrahim, I'll come up to you afterwards. What yeah. you because I'm, I'm I pretty, I'm pretty strong in methodology anyway. And uh, I, I agree that there's a lot of partial data and some of the methodology, even in your studies, is slightly flawed because any study with partial data is slightly flawed. But having slightly flawed data as the... the Gentleman, sorry, if you don't mind me, it's not too sexist to call you a gentleman, is it okay? Well, the, as the gentleman said, uh, it, it doesn't, just because there's partial data, doesn't mean that drone strikes are good. And what we're doing here is bickering over numbers. There are clearly children dying there. There's no question about that. There are clearly innocent people dying there. A lot of them were just bickering over, was it, was it 100, was it 50, or whatever. We know whether there are a lot. Yeah, we do That's know the there point. were some. Come on. You no, know we know that. there are some. You know that. You said that They've even been identified see, by the United no, States. No, so no, so no. don't be silly. No, and actually, they no. haven't. No, no, they haven't. Let's, let's go to the man who's actually been uh, affected by drone strike, Ibrahim. Can you come in on this? Yeah, I think there's a repetitive notion of uh, accepting the use of drones in some of the tribal areas in Pakistan because government does not exist. But uh, in some, in some of the, in many of the cases in Yemen, actually drones has been used in areas where the government have controls. One example is the drone strike after, uh, in December, after uh, Obama be uh, was appointed a, a president for the second term. The drone strike took place 15 kilometers away from the uh, downtown of Sana'a, capital. 
And, and the person who was killed actually was, was uh, being paid by the government because he was a teacher. In, in this case and in many other cases, it was easy actually to, t to take them into court and, 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 and to take them into due process. But apparently it's easier to kill them rather than waiting for, uh, for that from the perspective of okay. the American uh, um, government. Uh, the, the second point that I want to... Make it quick, Ibrahim, because yeah. we have to move on. The problem with Kirsten Fair is that uh, she won't believe anything unless she do it and she do, she do the reports itself. But that doesn't mean that the, such tragedies does not exist on, uh, on the ground. Okay. After, you know, All right. I'm going to have to stop you there. Since we haven't had a single question in the audience from a woman, I'm going to make this one yours, but you're going to have to make it very quick because I've got to get some of these web questions in as well, and you have to go through the process of voting. So this is going to be a quick question and quick answers from people, please. Yes. Okay, I'll try and talk fast. So I was just going to say that given that international human rights law arose partially after the Second World War because of the recognition that the actions of states did need to have some kind of international accountability, isn't America's failure to hold itself accountable to those standards and to allow transparency some kind of immoral action in itself? And doesn't that blacken any military policy that they do sort of under the covers and out of the spotlight of international law? David, I'd like you to very quickly answer that. I'm quickly answer it in, uh, in a kind of, I'm afraid, in a slightly kind of rhetorical way and so on. I would like to see a lot more transparency, um, although I can understand reasons as to why you don't give more transparency. I think we're going to have to have much more transparency, for instance, about the ways in which you judge targets. But my God, I'm glad that the Americans are there. I'm glad that the Americans I'm glad that the Americans are prepared to put their necks on the line for the rest of us and so on. I'm glad that they're interdicting places in Waziristan that are training people like the, like the people from Birmingham who would, if they got away with it, have blown us all up. I'm glad about it. And you, know, and, and you, and you can talk about, in a, in a sense, about the legal niceties. In a way, some of those are important. But part of the problem is that the other side of this argument, the one not interrogated by Clive and so on, has no concern about legal niceties. It doesn't care. It, is, it doesn't exist I'm in I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave it there. That whole interesting question about whether it's a legal nicety or a legal essential is where we are going to have to post it there. You are now, if you will going to deliver your vote. Some boxes are going to go round. You will see that you have in your hand a ticket, I hope, and that if you split it, you can either put the no or the yes, or it may say for or against, I'm not sure, into the box. If you remain still undecided or think this is a question which for some bizarre reason you should abstain on, then please put the whole ticket into the box. Meanwhile, while that is going on, panellists, I'm afraid you're evening is not yet over because there are still some important questions we're getting from around the world on uh, which they want to put to you. And this one is for Noel, as it happens. Were you paying attention, Noel? No, I wasn't. I'm no, sorry. I, I thought was, I was muttering to, to my <laughs> conspiracy here about cricket. There was a lot of conspiracy going on there. No, I'm just saying that Chris Grebeldinger <laughs> has a question which I think is appropriately addressed to you. Why should killing people with robots or drones be morally different from killing people with cruise missiles? Haven't we already trialled and accepted automated conflict as part and parcel of combat and war? What I'm concerned about with, with robots killing people is the fact that the machine is deciding who to kill. 
And that, to me, seems wrong. And it seems wrong because, um, because I work in the field of artificial intelligence. I know that no machine is capable of discriminating between a combatant and a civilian. And that's a very big concern. Do you think President Obama knows that too? I think he probably does. Sorry, clear, clear, clear that question, David. What, what was the... Does, does, he, <laughs> does not think that President Obama knows that too? In other so, words, does he, do you think that President Obama thinks that his uh, moral responsibility is somehow negated by the fact that a drone might itself, or some successor drone in 10, 20, 30 years' time, might choose the target? I doubt it. Let, let, could I just finish what I was going to say, if I may? Uh, if you just let me finish, and then you could jump Yeah, in. yeah, no, 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 yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. you can do that. Just let, on we go, on we go, on we go, on we go. So, so they can't discriminate, they can't be proportionate, and the DOD recent guidelines on this said that they will do it slowly and incrementally and make sure they comply with the laws of war, which is all very well. But, you know, many, many other... This is this blinkered approach. It's the same with destabilising world security, as if we're the only people who will ever have this technology. We're the only people who ever use it. There are a lot of countries coming online who will use it. Now, do you think we're going to set ourselves at a military disadvantage? If you look at why you want autonomous drones, it's simply because you break communication links if you're fighting with a more sophisticated force. We're not fighting with the Taliban. Sorry, it's a, it's a very long argument. No, it's, here. A, it's a long answer, but it's a deserved one. Doug, Douglas, you have got something to say. I see your hand, Mohammed, over there in um, Florida. Every single development in the history of war has always had this discussion around it. That's all right, when then. gunpowder was first invented, <laughs> Ariosto said in the early 16th century he was talking about how this would make war impossible, it would make it immoral, it would stop chivalry, the individual wouldn't be able to see the person they were killing and so on. This conversation has always gone on. And the conversation always goes on to what happens when other people get it. Of course we should be having that discussion. But let me simply answer your question. You said earlier, what would we do when the Chinese use a drone to kill the Dalai Lama? They could kill the Dalai Lama now. They don't because they know there would be an international blowback. They could send somebody to go and kill the Dalai Lama with a knife tomorrow. And we would react in the same way we would react if China sent a drone to kill him tomorrow. That's how we'd react. Just one minute because Mohammed is patiently uh, putting his hand up on the hangout. Okay. Mohammed? What I want to say is that uh, Noel is talking hypothetical. At this juncture, there is no pilotless... U.S. drone operating in the Pakistan or Afghanistan theater. There definitely is a pilot. The pilot it is piloted remotely. The only, probably the robotic weapons of war are in the Korean demilitarized zone owned by South Korea, which if an algorithm ABC is satisfied, they put into motion XYZ and that can work. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. When we get to the bridge, we will cross it. What we suggest is that the international law All right, thanks. I want to cross over now to the next question, um, which is from Sheldon Gold to anyone on the panel. Isn't the argument that drones encourage terrorism a moot point in a world where just drawing a cartoon encourages terrorism or writing books or making a film can incite the same reaction? But it's certainly not a moot point, is it? I mean, we want to do everything we can to prevent the encouragement. But I think the questioner is saying... To, to make the point that this inflames terrorism is a weak point to make because it is so easily inflamed. Well, I don't think so. I think we've done so many things to inflame it. And in response to what Douglas was saying a moment ago, the more that we 
who hold ourselves out as the leaders in democracy and all that stuff, the more that we sacrifice our own principles, we give the others the excuse to do it. So when we had Guantanamo Bay, Indonesia set up a little Guantanamo Bay off the coast of Indonesia and so on and so forth. We have to stand up for decency or we may as well give up. Nobody disagrees with that. It's simply that some people note that among the voices of opposition to every single thing that America decides under consecutive presidents to do to defend herself, certain people tend to speak not as critics but as enemies. Uh, I don't understand that. That it, It is something which Americans and others are quite rightly aware of that if you are arguing at a point where you think that you can improve the American system or you think that America could tackle terrorism better, then you have yet to come up with it. No, no, we've got lots Currently, of... Currently, all you can do well, let, is uh, to we won't get you to tell us, Clive, right now we're going to get Michael impossible to tell us about better ways of tackling terrorism. Michael. Well, well let, let me just start off by saying something about this debate about whether drones call ter- cause terrorism or not. I mean, terrorism is caused by an, an enormous number of factors. If we wanted to do a list of variables that we think cause terrorism, I could give you a laundry list of probably 50 to 60 variables long. The question really isn't that. The question is, what do drones signal to our enemies? And one of the things that I think is very important is that Al-Qaeda's view of the United States is that the United States is this heartless monster that drops bombs down on innocent Muslims without a second thought. And that's not what I believe under any circumstances. I'm an American citizen. I'm a skeptical patriot. But nonetheless, that's the image. And one question we have to ask ourselves is, do drones reinforce that image? Does the notion that we have a drones policy that doesn't bother to ask the name or combatant status of his victims actually reinforce their narrative rather than break it? Because real counterterrorism is about breaking their narrative. And have we got a better way of breaking that narrative than drones? Sure we do. My answer? Mm-hmm. Yes. My preference would be you start with extradition and trial when possible. You start with local policing when possible. You have a long-term strategy to try and reduce the causes of terrorism, and you use drones in a very limited way to try take out top See, operational commanders. And one of the, I think, the things that's happened is that the policy has shifted from taking top operational commanders to lower and lower on the food chain with uncertain consequences and effects. All right, thank you very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, a fascinating debate tonight and actually rather a fascinating final result. I'm now going to read to you the distribution of votes at the end of this evening. 3% of you still don't know. That may be a very principled position to hold or it may simply be that you're totally confused by the arguments. 52% of you are against the motion, but a remarkable 45% are in favour of it. So I declare the motion lost, but I also declare that those who proposed it did rather well in their own right. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This 
is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.